The Start. On Demand. On demand. So tell us if this has ever happened to you before. You go to the doctor. You get some tests done. You want to see the results, but you have to wait for your appointment. Why isn't there just a place, an online portal for patients? Today on The Start, that's one of the conversations we tackled as the Canadian Medical Association reveals just how badly Canadians want to see our healthcare move online. It's been 50 years since the Manson murders, and still that morbid fascination with Charles Manson remains. Plus, have you ever watched a movie and then wanted to visit the scene? The field of dreams shown in that movie in Iowa has drawn tens of thousands of people over the years. Now, a real game is going to be played next to it, the Yankees and the White Sox. And finally, are your kids in a lot of sports? What are they participating in? Numbers show youth participation in sports in the States is declining. Well, what sports are popular with kids here in Manitoba? And what are organizations doing to get our kids more active? All coming up on this edition of The Start. It's your health, it's your information, yet when it comes to accessing our own records, our own medical history, there's often no way to do it online. Only a handful of clinics, and I've, I've been to a few, provide online bookings, but those are few and far between. And virtual doctors, which would be like a consult that would happen over a system like Skype, there's still tools that, for the most part, largely are left to rural Canadians. They're seen as a way to connect people in remote communities rather than in use for everyday urban use. But the push is on for a more modern, connected healthcare system, and that's the finding of a survey with the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Gigi Osler is its president and joins us this morning. Good morning, Dr. Osler. Good morning. So this, the results from the survey, essentially, what are Canadians saying? What are they looking for? The message from the report is pretty clear. Um, Canadians are ready and eager for health care to catch up with the technology that we're used to using in our day-to-day lives. But... Canada's healthcare system needs an upgrade. Uh, you know, we still have hospitals that rely on fax machines and pagers, but in our other life, you know, in real life, we can take a picture of a check and send it to the bank for deposit. So it's clear that Canada's health system needs to modernize and it, it needs an upgrade. My kids are waiting to see a specialist, Dr. Osler, and I keep checking the mailbox mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. letter that confirms their appointment sometime in the distant future. And now when it takes so long to get a specialist appointment, I've started going back sometimes and flipping through maybe old mail or flyers and go, did I miss that letter? It, it's, it's, it's very archaic. It's very old-fashioned. It is. And there are some clinics who do online booking. So the technology does exist and it is in use, but it's not used consistently in Manitoba. It's not used consistently across the country, certainly not any large scale. Um, And I mean, you can track a package that you've ordered from Amazon online, but we still don't have any way to track our doctor's appointments online. And I often like like in technology and healthcare, like this big puzzle where we've got pieces scattered here and there. And so what we're trying to do is put those pieces together. We got to start connecting, sometimes using technology, like through virtual healthcare visits that you mentioned earlier, or, you know, sometimes the puzzle pieces may be 
technology like a patient portal where patients can track their appointments online or access your test results online. It all seems to make a lot of sense to me. I was telling Greg this morning, I'm switching family doctors and got a bill in the mail from the one clinic saying they're charging me for having to get these documents together and move them to the other doctor. And I thought two things, wait, what, I'm being charged for that. But also, shouldn't it all just be in an electronic file that they've scanned and put in the system and they just have to put, you know, move that file somewhere else? Like, is it, should it not be as simple as that? And so I'm having me wondering, what's the relux, relu- reluctance been to move this way? Is it fear about privacy? Is it about, you know, doctors operating in more silos than they should? What is it? It's a combination of everything you've mentioned. So the technology's there, but sometimes these electronic medical records don't talk to each other. So even though it may be in an electronic form in one doctor's office, there's no way for that doctor's office medical records to transfer information easily to another electronic medical record system or sometimes even to the hospital. There's privacy laws that sometimes prevent information being shared. Um, There's regulatory boundaries for virtual healthcare visits, for example. You know, I'm a doctor from Winnipeg, but I can't do a virtual healthcare visit with a patient in Kenora because I don't have an Ontario medical license. And these hurdles are not insurmountable. And the Canadian Medical Association is taking a serious look at all the hurdles And we've got a task force assigned to it, and we're going to come up with some recommendations by the end of the year so that we can start to integrate technology into healthcare. So is there more reluctance from the public than there is from medical professionals, or is it the other way around? The report is clear. Canadians are ready and eager. We want a more seamless experience when you go to the hospital or when you go to the doctor, both in terms of the whole you know, flow through the uh, healthcare system and, and your medical records. Doctors want a better experience for patients as well. You know, we see the system as fragmented and siloed. And when I look at all the work my colleagues do, my nursing colleagues, my healthcare colleagues, my physician colleagues, sometimes just trying to get information from this hospital or that CT scanner or, oh, you had this done at a different hospital. It's a lot of time spent doing administrative tasks that we might be able to use technology for so that we can spend more time face-to-face with patients. Well, the time when we're talking about streamlining, making our healthcare system more efficient, making a bunch of changes, this sounds like a positive possibility to me. Dr. Osler, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. Yesterday, Global News Washington Bureau Chief uh, Jackson Proskow sent out a tweet that caught our attention. He joined the start from El Paso, Texas on Wednesday morning. He was covering the aftermath of the mass murder in that community last weekend. As we were getting ready to wind down our day yesterday, Jackson tweeted out some pictures and a thread which was impossible to ignore. His first tweet in the thread read, quote, I'm at the airport in Dallas waiting for my flight home to D.C. from El Paso and something incredible is happening. Here's that story. 
This was not just another arrival at Dallas's Love Field. This was a homecoming, 52 years in the making. I was inside the airport, waiting for my flight to Washington, and you're about to find out why we were all gathered around the airport windows, taking pictures in silent awe. As the plane pulled up to a water cannon salute, we were told about the special passenger who was coming home to Dallas, Colonel Roy Knight Jr., an American airman who was shot down in 1967 over Laos during the Vietnam War, missing in action ever since. Colonel Knight's remains were only recently found and identified and returned to American soil. Today, the colonel finished the long trip home to Dallas. Now, that alone makes the story remarkable, but here's where it becomes incredible. It was at this exact airport 52 years ago that Colonel Knight said farewell to his family, including a young son who would grow up to be a pilot just like his dad. So on this day, Captain Brian Knight of Southwest Airlines was the pilot of the plane that brought his father home. I had accepted that, that I would never see that. You know, I would never, as, you know, during my lifetime that he would come home. Captain Knight was just a five-year-old boy when he saw his father off to war. He would have waved farewell at this airport. He probably would not have fully understood where his father was going. It means a, a whole lot to us that, that he's finally coming back to, to his country and to his family. 52 years later, father and son were reunited on that same tarmac. The rest of us were privileged enough to watch it happen. Jackson Prosco, Global News, Dallas. Beautiful story. Oh. Love field. Say right. no more. Hey, that is a very nice story. Well, today marks 50 years since the Manson family murders of seven people in L.A., including actress Sharon Tate. They were all killed by followers of cult leader Charles Manson, August 9th and August 10th, 1969. Fifty years have passed, Greg, but I think the question, how did Charles Manson convince them to kill, lives on. That is the headline at globalnews.ca because the story was written by global national reporter Jeff Semple, who joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, good morning, Lauren. The name Charles Manson... Uh, it just seems to live on in infamy. He died in prison in 2017, but in your own words, you wrote that the morbid fascination just doesn't seem to want to go away. In all your conversations with people and in interviews, what do you think's behind that? Yeah, I mean, that was the question that really, I think, drew us to want to explore, you know, this story, you know, today marking the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders. And we're talking about a guy who's often referred to as a serial killer, even though he never actually killed anyone himself, as far as we know, that he ordered his other, uh, his followers to do his dirty work for him. Uh, and 50 years have gone by. Charles Manson died in prison a couple of years ago, and yet his name is just a household name. So, you know, we wanted to really explore that question, and I think, you know, there are a few answers to it. One of them is that Ma Manson was just, you know, a master of getting the public's attention, uh, and he did that right until his death. He was always, you know, just shocking and provocative, surprising through his whole court case, of course, which he turned into a circus, and right, you know, through the interviews that he provided to journalists until the day he died. But I think, you know, for a lot of us, the, one of the real reasons that this story has, has remained a subject of morbid fascination and enduring intrigue is that he, again, as we said, he never actually did 
any of the murders himself, but he somehow persuaded others to do his dirty work for him. And, and sort of, you know, there is, we sort of hear Charles Manson's name. A lot of people think of this kind of mystical power of persuasion and, and mind control over his zombie like followers. Of course, uh, that isn't true, but I think the belief that he was able to sort of control other people and make them do terrible things is why his name has lived on in infamy. So, in order to try and get inside the head of Charles Manson and to, to learn a little bit more about the man, you talked to one of his followers. That must have been fascinating. What did she have to say? Yeah, one of his followers, Diane Lake, who met Manson when she was just 14 years old. So she was one of his youngest followers, one of his first, like the original members, founding members, if you like, of the Manson family. And she actually, you know, because she was so young and she actually ended up testifying against Manson at trial, but she kept all of this a secret, even from her her, her partner and from her children for decades and only in the last sort of 15 years or so has she come out and told her story and made it public because uh, she was actually getting roped into another police investigation where they were looking at some other unsolved cases that they thought might be linked to Manson. She ended up getting involved. So she's come out with her story now. And as you say, it's an interesting one uh, because she can kind of provide her this rare window into what it was like uh, at that time. She talked about Manson just being this really disarming, charming, guitar-playing hippie uh, who invited her in. And I think it's, you know, she also really underscores the fact that, you know, reminds us of, of the culture at that time, the rising counterculture. Uh, and her parents were certainly a part of that. They were, you know, experimenting with drugs, uh, encouraging her to try drugs from a very young age. They dropped out of society, uh, in their own words, and they even granted her permission to live on her own at the age of 14. So she ended up moving in with Manson and his followers, and she watched his descent, as she describes it, from going from this charming sort of wannabe rock star uh, into someone who was, you know, doing a lot of drugs, dropping a lot of acid, uh, ended up having all of these... Uh, visions where he was crucified believed that he was the was the return of Jesus Christ and was was put on this earth to help fight a race war a, a black white black race war so she really does paint this picture of, of really an, an insane time uh, and and the fact that this was just sort of a drug fueled chaotic moment that was you know helped by the fact that the culture at the time uh, and you know ended up spiraling out of control as we know Lake uh, actually had a falling out with Manson before the murders uh, so she was actually ostracized ostracized from the group before the murders happen and she's uh, you know thanks god for that every day she says you speak of the times in terms of that 60s uh, hippie culture uh, drugs uh, the, the peace and love and yet when these murders happen so many people say they shocked the nation and that kind of put an end to that era as well it might have been the end of the decade that might have had something to do with it but it sort of was a huge cultural shift post manson murders yeah, and that's a, that's an interesting point, right? Because and I, we've actually, uh, in producing this, these reports today, interviewed a couple of people. One of whom, uh, based at uh, Cambridge and uh, Cambridge University, James Riley, who wrote, has just published a book on that very subject, talking about how Charles Manson sort of crystallized that moment that there was this sort of impending sense of doom at the end of the '60s. That you had the rising counterculture, the idea of a race war, uh, uh, a, a, a class war. Excuse me. 
and that the, he sort of felt like that was part of the reason that there was so much media around Manson's case, not only because some of his victims were members of the Hollywood elite, but also because people were sort of bracing for this moment, the idea that there was going to be this kind of uprising. Um, so, yeah, and as you say, I mean, it really often, people often look at that summer of 1969 as, as being a critical moment for a lot of reasons, and one of them was the fact that, yeah, this, the, the Charles Manson murders shocked not only the country but the world and kind of, you know, brought this this rising culture, cult, counterculture and hippie culture to a head in a terrible way. Jeff, I just went onto Amazon and I clicked in Charles Manson t-shirt and there's about eight different types of Manson t-shirts that you can buy to this day. And I can remember seeing guys in high school walking around with the t-shirt, a picture of Manson, a, a famous one, whether it was his mug shot or uh, one where he's kind of bug-eyed and wide-eyed. I, I just don't understand the fascination with this man, but it continues 50 years later, and it shows no sign of slowing down. That's right. And, you know, the 50th anniversary is, has inspired a slew of new books, new movies, including Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, and, and, you know, as you say, we're talking about, you know, as tragic as it was, we're talking about nine people who were killed in the summer of 1969, as far as that we know of by Manson and his followers. Nine people were killed in Dayton, Ohio last week in that mass shooting. And I'm sure that gunman will be, you know, forgotten before long. But Manson's name has just lived on, as you say. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. And, and so I think, you know, when we talk to people, biographers, people who have studied him, they think, you know, maybe there's there's another generation to go. They actually point, one of them, Jeff Gwynn, a Manson biographer, pointed to the fact that kids today are still wearing those T-shirts you mentioned there. Um, but it's interesting because we've talked also to some of the victims' family members uh, who, you know, about the anniversary and, I, and the fact that this comes up over and over and they just have to, you know, rehash and relive the horrors of what happened 50 years ago again and again and again. But they also point out, the uh, guys, that, you know, five Manson family members who were involved in the actual murders remain in prison today uh, in California. They have been recommended for parole many times, most of them. Each time the governor of California intervenes and overrules the decision, insists that they stay incarcerated. And some of the victims' family members say that actually all of this attention has been a mixed blessing, at least for them, because on one hand it makes them relive the horrors, but on the other hand it has created such sustained public interest and public pressure in this case that it's likely that Manson's followers will you know, do what their leader did and die in prison. Where the publicity could perhaps do some good... Maybe it's the last official day of your holidays as we head into a weekend. Maybe you're starting your holidays either way, wherever you are. Hey, Rudy, shout out to Rudy who's listening online at cjob.com from Montreal this morning. Which is, I think, maybe where our next guest is too. He's in Quebec somewhere. Well, why don't we find out? Let's bring him on here. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you, man? Very well. West Island of Montreal, absolutely. There you go. Mike well, Armstrong, Global News, and uh, one of the biggest baseball fans I know. Uh, Mike, uh, have they started digging uh, for the new baseball stadium in Montreal yet? <laughs> uh, no, they haven't. But I'll tell you, where they're talking about putting it, uh, certainly hallowed ground, uh, because I remember following when they dug out the, the old forum, they t- they put in parking underneath the forum, and they moved all that earth down to the to the port, and so that's exactly where they're thinking about building the new baseball stadium, which would be literally on the old forum land. 
kind of funny. Eh? It is. Why we're talking about baseball this morning. The, the second person I thought of after you, Greg, when I saw this tweet yesterday was Mike Armstrong. And it has to do the fact with that the White Sox and the Yankees are playing a game and building basically a mini ball diamond next to the ball diamond that exists in Iowa from the film a field of dreams. And I know Mike got a chance to actually visit that field several years ago. He put together a mini documentary for 16 by nine. And first of all, uh, before we get into what you learned from that, Mike, was that just a completely like, I got to get myself to Iowa. So I'm going to make a, pe- a pitch for a documentary so I can actually see this thing. I heard it was for sale. By, this is back, what was it, 2010? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I, I need a Canadian angle. There's got to be a Canadian angle. I started researching and sure enough, one of the first places, locations they considered was outside Toronto. And they ended up going with Iowa, but they considered Toronto. Well, you so didn't have to go I that just, far, Mike. I mean, uh, W.P. Kinsella is Canadian, the author of the book. Yeah. Come on, man. Absolutely. You're right. Absolutely. But I, so I had a couple of good angles, and, and that's what I pitched. Uh, but the owners, the, the, the Lansings, kept saying no, kept saying no. So I actually was on the phone to cancel the trip. And I said, you know what? I'm going to call the Lansings one more time and beg. And I pulled my car over and I called the Lansings. And she answered the phone and said, I was about to call the annoying Canadian and tell him he could come. And <laughs> that's, that's literally how we ended up going. And I'll tell you, fast forward 48 hours. And I think I was in their pool having a bud and they were making ribs for us. They were the nicest people I've ever met in my life. What was their hesitation, their reservation in, in having you come down to do the story? They were busy, and we were. it was literally the last episode of the season for us. So my window was just a matter of a few days, and we had to do it or, or on that specific weekend, or we couldn't do it at all. Anyway, they said they said yes, and I'm, I'm still in touch with them today. They texted me yesterday with the announcement of the baseball game. Um, Sometimes you run into people, you meet them, and, and you stay friends. And, and I'm happy to say that's been the case with the Lansings. Even though they don't own the field today. They sold it a few years ago. Um, but there's another group um, that's keeping it alive, and, and that's the group that's putting on this uh, game next summer. Well, let's talk about this field. It, of course, was built in the movie off the phrase, if you build it, they will come. A baseball field made out of a cornfield, and I think to this day it still draws so many tourists. When you were there, Mike, just give us your first impressions in terms of what drew you in. Was it just like the movie? It's glorious. It is just like the movie, although it was kind of funny because we arrived and uh, literally drove up and went, oh, yeah, at this time of year the corn's only a foot high. (laughs) So it was was a little disappointing, I'm not going to lie. We made do. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's glorious. I mean, it looks exactly the same as it did back then. Um, I mean, right down to the swing at the very beginning of the movie, when Kevin Costner's Ray Kinsella is walking through the field and he hears the voice and he turns to his wife, Amy Madigan, and, and she's on the, on the, um, the swing on the front porch. Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear anything. We didn't hear anything. Uh, I wrote part of my story sitting on that swing. Oh. Like it's, it, I'm telling you, it's just fantastic. The the one of the greatest places, and then to have the chance to walk through the house with uh, Donnie Lansing, the the owner who grew up in that house, and have him tell the story of how he was just sitting there by himself one day in the, in the farmhouse, and uh, the door there was a knock at the door, and some uh, location scout said hey, we're thinking about doing a movie next year and try to take some pictures. And sure enough, they came back and made the movie. 
life-changing for so many people. The movie has changed so many lives. I shared it with my 13-year-old twin boys on Monday night, Mike, and my boys play baseball, and my son Brendan says, Dad, baseball's boring to play. We really have to watch a two-hour movie about baseball. I'm like, Brendan, the movie is about almost everything but baseball. It's just the baseball is the cornerstone, is is at the heart of this, but in a very unique way, and it tells so many stories. And I know it's an American story, but as I mentioned off the top, and as most people know, W.P. Kinsella, the author of the book, is a Canadian. So Canadians are very, 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 or pardon me, baseball is a very, very Canadian game as well. Yeah, and so is fatherhood and family, and that's what the movie's about. Right. I'll tell you, we, we went we went into Dyersville, Iowa, which is sort of the town right beside the field, and we needed some people to talk about what the movie meant to them, and we thought, you know, it's a little hokey. I think it was a Sunday morning. Or, are we going to get anybody to talk about? And the, the first person we stopped, a gentleman walking his dog, and I said, what does the movie mean to you? And he broke down crying in front of us on the street. I mean, the first person we spoke to, and I said, are you thinking about your father? And he's like, absolutely, I am. You know, and it, and that's what that last scene is for me. Uh, my dad's still with us. I just think of him. I, but I, it's bigger than that. It's family, too. It's, it's, it's not a movie about baseball at all. Well, we have our, our regular segment on our show called The Couch Potatoes, done with Brett McGarry and Jeff Braun. Jeff Braun just watched the movie for the first time just a month ago and says he hasn't stopped thinking about it since, that he thinks about it daily. There's the fatherhood connection. It's also a bit about regret, second chances. I mean, there's a whole host of things. Uh, have you watched it with your boys? I have. Uh, they enjoyed it. Not not as much as they should have. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... But they did it. Yeah, they did enjoy it. They did sort of. I, I think when someone goes, when someone sitting beside you enjoys the movie as much as I did, um, you, you sort of look at them and go, "Wow, okay, hasn't changed my life the way it's changed yours, Dad." Fair enough. <laughs> you know, uh, there's something special about that connection being made uh, with a child, whether it's your son, your daughter, with a movie or with sport or some sort of adventure where something just clicks and and you realize that, uh, okay, there's a whole other level that our relationship is connecting on. And for Ray Kinsella, it was to build a baseball field in his cornfield, to travel to Boston, to get, you know, to do all the things that he did to connect with his dad, who obviously had passed. And just that aspect of the story, I don't know, I just have a hard time turning my back on it. It's so powerful, Mike. Well, you're not alone. I mean, uh... Um, Kevin Costner went to the field. He's only been back, I think, three times. And the last time he went back, he went out into the field and he had a catch with his son. And there were all sorts of people milling about and watching him have this catch with his son. And he said, you know what, son, I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw a ball with those men over there. And his son said, what do you mean, with all those men? What do you mean? He said, let me just, let's see what happens. And he said he started throwing with one of the guys, just a stranger. And he threw eight or nine times. And the guy looked at the person next to him and said, here, it's your turn now, and passed the ball to the guy beside him. And Kevin Costner had a catch with like 30 full-grown men in the, in the outfield of that field. That's what it means to people. When I'm getting choked up now, but when, when Ray, Ray's dad says, uh, you know, do, do, Dad, do you want to have a catch? When he says to his dad, do you want to have a catch? And whether you've done it with your dad or not, and I've been fortunate enough to do it lots of times with my, my dad, it's impossible not to get choked up. That one line, just that idea of what that represents. 
I'll tell you, it's uh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is one of those movies. It, it's one. It's the Wizard of Oz. Um, it's it's that big a movie. Well, the field is still a draw. Next year, it'll be a draw because of Major League Baseball actually coming to the Field of Dreams. Any guesses to what those tics, tickets might cost for that, Mike? Oh, that's a that's a good <laughs> question. I mean, I don't know if they're going to do pay per view or something, but yeah, they're they're going to make some money. It's a temporary field, which is just mind blowing. But the the company that owns the the field now that bought it from the Lansings had intended to build like a twenty field complex uh, for softball, baseball, and all of that. But they just haven't gotten the financing together in time, and and they missed some deadlines, and so that hasn't happened. So this temporary field, I'll be interested to see whether it doesn't just stick around as sort of a, a longer term thing after once the uh, once that one game is done. Armstrong, I think I'm going to have to fight you to see who goes to co- cover this for Global. <laughs> well, I can drive there. Can you? I, I can and I would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Damn. Further. laughs> All right. We'll talk over the next year or so. Mike, thanks for sharing Why this with us. Why do I have us. a feeling Mike's sending an email to our <laughs> president like as we speak right who now? Who says I didn't send one last night? <laughs> 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 thanks, Mike. We appreciate this Thank so very much. Thanks, thanks for uh, getting so uh, so personal with us. It means a lot. Thank you. We're having a serious talk mixed in with a lot of fun today. And Loren uh, had some great reaction with our about our conversation or to our conversation with Mike Armstrong about the Field of Dreams, New York Yankees, and the Chicago White Sox. I think there's going to be 8,000-seat stadium built at the Field of Dreams. The one question I wanted to ask, Mike, was if you're going to do a similar thing for hockey, we've seen all these stadium series games over the years, including here in Winnipeg. And then this October, the Jets will play the Flames in Regina at Mosaic Stadium. Where would you do a similar thing for hockey? That would be meaningful? That would be comparable to the the field of dreams for baseball. I think I'd have to know more about the history of it in our country in the sense of where was the first... Some of the first games played, mm. you know, like, is there a pond I th- I or, Nova a, Scotia. or a rink or a place that, but, but then I'd be learning about it and it doesn't mean anything to me. I know for myself, uh, the very first time I saw a game at the forum in Montreal was pretty special because of the history. It's a shopping center now. Well, I know. Or a movie now theater. Now it's Bell, what is it, Bell Place or no, Budweiser yeah, yeah, Place, but, but the Molson old place. forum I think is an AMC theater yeah, or something. Yeah, so the forum was cool for that. Coincidentally, it was the game that Patrick Waugh quit after. Oh, oh, that's right. I forgot you were at that game. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, nothing's better than watching watching a goalie basically uh, skate off the ice and, and tell a coach, quit the team. I'll never later. play for you again, buddy. Yeah. Why don't we ask Jeff Natchuk? Jeff Natchuk joins us now. Uh, we've only had, uh, let me see, we've got Jeff Braun, Jeff Forche, Jeff Semple, and now we add to the list Jeff Natchuk, Sport Manitoba President and Chief Executive Officer. Hey, Jeff, if if uh, we didn't have a stadium to play a hockey game in, can you think of a place where we might build a stadium or to, to play hockey or something outdoors as something quintessential, either Manitoban or Canadian? Jeez, you guys, you're, you're putting me on the spot That's here. That's our job, uh, Jeff. First thing, I, I guess so. Um, 
Well, it's got to be somewhere in Manitoba because isn't Manitoba the center of all things uh, sport in, like the, in the country of Canada? What so it's got to be this? somewhere in Manitoba. What about this? I'm a big curling guy. The Jets did that uh, practice at the Forks sure. one year, and uh, um, I've competed in the Ironman curling event on the rivers mm-hmm. in the past. What if we built a stadium, a mini stadium, held about 6,000 people at the Forks for curling, like an actual curling <laughs> Head-to-head bond spiel with uh, Jennifer Jones and and or Carrie Birdnick or Jeff Stoughton. I think that would be kind of cool. That'd be. I think that's a great idea. Bring okay. back some of the uh, the other the uh, the history of curling, the Oris Mellis Chucks mm. and Connie Laliberties, and for sure. Okay, be Jeff. Great idea. You're uh, good at planning big events like uh, Western uh, Canada Summer Games. So there you go. There's your idea for uh, two winters from now. The reason we re- reached out to you, and we appreciate you uh, joining us this morning, I came across this thing yesterday, and I'll just read it the way I found it. Youth sports participation rates nationwide. This is in the United States are in decline, and ESPN is addressing the crisis and bringing awareness to the issue by exclusively launching uh, the Don't Retire Kid campaign in partnership with the Aspen Institute's Project Play. There's a long way around and to give you the statistic. The goal is to help increase sports participation rates among youth in the United States. In 2018, only 38% of kids aged 6 to 12 played team sports on a regular basis. And in 10 years, that's down from 45%. So I wanted to know, are we seeing a similar trend in Manitoba? Because that, that's kind of a startling number for me. Yeah, I, I think we, I think we're seeing, uh, we're, we're definitely seeing a trend, not only in Manitoba, but in, in Canada, of a decrease in participation in, in sport. I think it's also important to note, and I, I did have a chance to have a, a quick look at the, the, the report out of the U.S., the state of play. Uh, it's focusing on team sport. Um, and so there's a lot of individual sport that have significant numbers to them, too, especially in the U.S. when you talk about sports like tennis or swimming, etc. So um, not to say that it's misleading, um, but would, would I... I mean, would I use the term crisis as as they do? Uh, it's definitely an issue here in uh, in Manitoba. Um, but a crisis, I'm not sure. If we look at our, our numbers here and just doing sort of a quick review, and they focused on, I think, 6 to 12-year-old age group. Um, if we look at the 12 and under age group here in Manitoba, over the last 15 years, uh, we've seen a decrease of about 3,000 participants that have registered for sport in that particular age group. So it's an issue. Um, yes. I mean, there's all kinds of factors I think that, that you can look at when you're comparing uh, our environment 15 years ago to, to what it is now. Um, but it's definitely an issue. And, and what I found interesting in the report is some of the, um, the things that they've identified as leading to the lack of or the decrease in, in participation. And it really mirrors the same things that we see here in Canada and specifically here in Manitoba. What, what, I was gonna say, what's behind us? I mean, what's, what, what's going on in our homes or as parents or as families that would be contributing to that? Well, and, and they identified some of them. Um, costs. Are, uh, are always one, especially in some sports where you look at significant facility rental costs and those sorts of things. That factors in uh, into it. Um, they identified a, an interesting one that, that we're seeing more and more, and that is the challenges around kids 
specializing in one sport way too early at a at a young age, which can cause kids to really burn out and and leave that particular sport. And the multi-sport experience is something that we talk about all the time as being very important for especially the very young kids. Um, I think getting more more girls involved in, in sport, and I think we see some trends even in some of our sports here in, in Manitoba, whose numbers have actually um, increased. One of the reasons being is because they're getting more girls involved in uh, in their particular sport. So those were, were interesting, uh, I think, issues identified through the report out of the U.S. that we definitely see here in Canada and Manitoba. You know, Jeff, you, you mentioned women in sport and, and girls in sport in Manitoba. And for so long, I've marveled at how Manitoba female athletes have excelled on the world stage. Like we have some of the very best female athletes in multiple sports sports born here in Manitoba. It's almost an endless list. It, it really is. And um, I mean, when you look at our, our speed skaters, and we can go pretty far back when we look at our speed skaters, our curlers, obviously. Uh, yeah, as far as leadership in female sport in, in the country, I think Manitoba is, uh, is definitely front and center. So how do we keep nurturing that? And so let's flip it on the positivity side. Uh, our, some of our best friends had uh, their, their kids in the camps at the Sport for Life Centre, one of the legacies from the Canada Games. Uh, they just marveled not only at the facility itself, but the camps. How do, how do, we, how do we perpetuate this and, and grow our legacy as a province uh, in terms of our competitiveness and our ability to excel and, and champion in sport? Yeah, there's um, I, it, there's a number of ways that we're we're looking at doing that. I I think you bring up a really good point about the opportunity to provide at a very young age kids to a number of different activities and a lot of non-traditional type activities just to keep kids not only in sport but to keep them active. Um, you know, we look at education programs that we're providing for our coaches and our parents. Uh, through our respect in sport program around the values of kids participating, but not only the value of them participating in sport, but also how they can be treated to have a very positive um, sport experience, which is important, especially at a very young age. We've uh, we started a program in partnership with Doctors Manitoba. Gee, I'm going to say it's probably about six, seven years ago, called the Fit Kids Healthy Kids Program. And we go into daycare programs and we, we expose kids to just fun activities, but those activities really have a bit of a purpose to them, not only to show kids it can be really fun to get involved in activities, but it starts them down a path of developing very basic skills like running, jumping, throwing, so that when they're introduced to a sport at a hopefully a, a younger age, they feel a lot more confident participating in it, and that confidence leads to them wanting to stay in that uh, in that sport. So there's a number of things that we're doing with a number of uh, valuable partners in the community to really enhance the experience and keep kids in get them in sport and physical activity programs and keep them in those activities. Jeff, thanks for opening this discussion and uh, being open to having it with us. Can we uh, can we talk about this a little bit more down the road? We, we always appreciate uh, your insight on these things. It's it's a big deal to Manitobans. At any time, guys. I really appreciate the, the opportunity to, uh, to chat with you this morning. We appreciate you as well. Jeff Natchuk joining us this morning. You know his name. He's Sport Manitoba President and Chief Executive Officer joining us this morning on The Start.
Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.